You know, I probably shouldn't say this out loud, but this was kind of an okay day. Are you bragging? No. Kind of. Not about this entirely. I also kind of killed a god. <laughs> Hilarious. No, serious. Ember. I mean, he was erasing the whole thing. Wait, you can't be serious. Yeah. No, 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 no. No, I didn't want to. He had just killed his brother. He was going after Julia. I, he was genocidally insane. You don't get it. Jesus. When I was a, a, a Niffin, I, I saw things. I saw everything from the beginning of time. Calm down. No, I, I understand the way the universe works, Q. The, the, the wellspring, the hierarchies, the plumbing. I was inside it. Gods like Ember have parents, you idiot. I'm not following. The old gods, the creators of the universe, of, of all magic itself, to, to Ember were like, were like toys, but to them were, were, were cells. When we're harmless, they ignore us, but when we become malignant, they amputate. Now, if you're going to use stones like this, it's imperative that... I love that it is an actual plumber, like, full outfit and everything. Excuse me, this... Okay, wait, like, so there's an actual... Plumber? Like the Mario brother of the gods? Yes. And he can just... I guarantee you he's doing it. Attention. Please keep calm and follow all code procedures. Please remember not to interact and safely gather all things and cautiously exit. Welcome to Physical Kids Weekly, episode 213. Um, I'm still a little unclear on what the actual title of this is. I've seen both It Begins and We Have Brought You Little Cakes. Uh, <laughs> but this is the finale episode of The Magician Season 2, and we're really excited to be here. I'm Clara. I'm Danny. And we're here today with the man himself, God of Fillory, High King of the Fandom, author of The Magician's Books, Lev Grossman. Welcome, Lev. Thank you. Good to be here. <laughs> I would like to start by asking you um, about what it's like for you as an author to see your work brought to life and how you've been involved in, in the show in this particular adaptation. Um, <clears throat> it's, a, it's a little indescribable, so um, I'm going to sort of, uh, I'm going to try to describe it and then fail because uh, it, it's sort of so hard to talk about. Um, it's, been, it's been very, very fun to see uh, the magicians adapted. It's not something that I ever thought would happen. Um, while I was writing the books, um, then I thought for a little while it would happen after they came out. Then I thought, no, they're definitely, it's definitely not going to happen. And then uh, Sarah and John K 
came along and made it happen. Um, it is wonderful. It's it's delirious. Uh, it's exciting. It's it's maddening and frustrating. Um, uh, uh, it's sort of all of those things. Um, uh, but above all, it's just, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's very wonderful. Writing, writing a novel is a very, it's an isolating experience. It's very non collaborative experience. Um, you do it, you know, uh, alone in your, in, in your room when you probably should be doing something else. Um, I spent five years doing the magicians, um, uh, and a lot of it was really just sort of shutting myself away and working on it and not knowing if it would ever be published. And then to uh, have it passed to uh, all these brilliant people um, and watching them working on it and, and taking the characters and filling with them with so much of themselves and taking that world, it's incredibly gratifying and just like kind of, in a way, almost kind of healing. Uh, mm-hmm. It was kind of traumatic producing The Magicians. Um, it really was this thing that I did, you know, really by myself. Uh, and it was, I just, I found it, was re- it was really, really hard. Um, now, getting to watch these people do it, talking to them about it, having this whole kind of community. It's like a, basically a little village in Vancouver, which is just devoted to producing the show. Um, uh, it's really wonderful. And I have just super warm feelings about it. <laughs> Cool. Um, and what have your thoughts been so far about the show and, and I guess the season in particular? I mean, I, I, I want to say from the start that, you know, it's John and Sarah's show. Um, I have really, uh, I've really stepped back from it. I talk to them about it all the time. Or I participate. Uh, I give them feedback. Um, but I really, I watch it as a fan. Um, I don't sort of think, uh, you know, this is my thing. And they kind of like did exciting tweaks to it. Um, I really look at it as much as possible as this thing that I'm coming to fresh. Mm. Um, and, you know, this season, uh, uh, and, and also they've d- departed from the books quite extensively. Uh, I mean, you know, at this point, you, you kind of occasionally encounter uh, an element from the books or a beat from the books. Um, but so much of it is uh, is fresh and new and improvised by John and Sarah. Um uh, that you know, a lot of it doesn't even feel like an adaptation. Um, but uh, some of my favorite stuff from the books happened this episode. Um, some of the things that I sank a lot of really personal feeling into, um, I saw on screen in a really satisfying, moving way. Um, you know, I think I've, we've watched the actors really sink deeper into the roles um, and get a feel for them and stretch, uh, you know, watching Alice be Niffin Alice, watching Julia be shadeless Julia. Um, uh, I, I think especially watching um, uh, Margot just, you know, f- extend the range of, of, of her character um, uh, has been really, it's been really exciting and fun. Um, you watch them go to places and be like, I didn't know they could do that. Um, <laughs> and then there they are doing it. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm really interested in what you think about how the show has has developed and departed from the concept of shades in the book. Um I think right like in the in, in the books from my memory there's no conversation about what it means to Alice's shade that she's an infant, for example. Mm-hmm. So that's been a, an entirely new storyline. 
Yeah, they've worked out their own kind of uh, sort of cosmological um, uh, uh, spiritual mechanics around the shade uh, that um, is, is wholly theirs. I mean, the shades were not a load-bearing um, plot element in the books. Um, they, I, I feel like they have an ongoing interest in this idea of what happens if you lose part of yourself, um, especially around your emotions. You remember the kind of emotion bottles that were in, in yeah. season one, um, where they just, let's subtract our emotions for a while and see what that's like. Um, the shades are similar, uh, and they're, you know, both, they both take something away, and then they're also really disinhibiting. Um, and allow uh, uh, the characters to sort of do and feel things they wouldn't have otherwise. Um, it's been, it's, it's, it, I find it interesting and exciting. Um, it's very much a John and Sarah thing. Um, hmm. it's, it's definitely, it, it's not from the books. Um, it's, uh, it's part of, it's part of, uh, it's part of the magician's show as a work of art. Doesn't have that much to do with the books. <laughs> Um, so before we get into this episode or before we even get into the interview, um, I want to start by asking you about the new book that you're working on. It's The Bright Sword, right? That's the name of it? Working title, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what what can you tell us about it? And I, I know it can't be everything, but... <laughs> yeah, I, I get really blabby about it. And then I get... Uh, <laughs> then. Um, uh, uh, and then I hear from, from, from the publisher who's saying, saying, don't be blabby about it. Um, <laughs> Uh, and don't, 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 don't say too much about it. Um, so I'll try not to say too much about it. Um, uh, the bright sword is, it's an Arthurian story. It's a, uh, um, it is meant to be, you know, yet another in the very long line of kind of, you know, reinterpretations of, of, of King Arthur. Um, to get King Arthur, it's a, it's a story that just, it gets retold and retold over and over again. Um, it has been, you know, now for since since at least you know the the the, um, the you know well into the first millennium. Um, so significantly more than a thousand years of King Arthur stories have been told. Um, and there's something about the story. It becomes this wonderful way just to sort of mark what's different about the world you're in as compared to the world 20 years ago or 30 years ago. The world when Marion Zimmer Bradley was in it, the world when T.H. White was in it. Um, I, um, I've always loved King Arthur stories. I never had thought seriously about writing one um, until I did a thought experiment and wondered for a moment, what would it be like to, um, what would a King Arthur story look like today? What would you have to do to King Arthur, that story, to, um, to make it feel like it meant something right now, make it relevant? Um, uh, because in some ways, you know, it's 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 not an amazing fit for our contemporary world. It is, you know, overwhelmingly about about white men. Um, it's a it's become a very Christian story. I'm not a Christian person. You know, is is, is there any point in even sort of um, trying to say something through through this kind of uh, through this story? Um, and for a long time, I thought probably not. Uh, and then I became interested. In 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 this question, what happens after Arthur's death? The, one of the great sort of insights of T. H. White's was to tell the story of Arthur's childhood, which had never been told before. Nobody had ever did that. All that stuff about Merlin being his tutor and living backwards mm. and stuff like that and changing him into animals, T. H. White just made that up. That was never part of the Arthurian canon before. Um, and in a similar way. I got really interested in, 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 what, in that, when what happened after his death, in the chaos um, of that world, 
where the center has collapsed and mm. Britain is coming apart um, and the world has become disenchanted uh, and confused. Uh, it's it's, a, it's a, almost a dystopian novel or a post-apocalyptic novel. Um, you know, the world has comprehensively been shattered and the, um, the, and, and the, the core taken out of it. What was it like for the handful of knights that were still alive? And there were very few of them. There are six or seven. I've had to actually resurrect a few knights in an um, extra-canonical way just to supply myself with characters because hardly anybody survived, uh, at least in the kind of Thomas Mallory version. Um, so I started writing, I, I'm writing it uh, about life in that post-Arthurian <laughs> moment. Um, and then also the characters, the, the, there are sporadic stories that kind of drift into the main story set um, in the great days of Camelot. So kind of before the fall. Uh, I, I've been reading um, Station Eleven. Uh, oh, I love that, that book. Yeah, it's great. And I, I love the way that it skips forward and backwards around around it's in a it's a post apocalyptic book, but it's also a pre apocalyptic book. It sort of skips backward and forward in time. Um and I wanted to play a little of that game, um, juxtaposing stories of the the heyday, the golden age of Camelot, um, with uh life in in the ruins afterwards. Um and what happens is I end up retelling that story, the story we all know of King Arthur and Lancelot and Guinevere and Galahad uh, and all those people and the Grail quest. Um but through a slightly different lens, um, almost as a kind of mystery story. It's like the mystery of, you know, who killed King Arthur? <laughs> um, and I, I sort of come at it in a slightly different way from other stuff I've read um, in terms of giving the characters proper modern psychologies and um, uh, figuring out what really, what really did go wrong. I'm very excited to hear that... Um your take on on uh, on the sort of post um, Arthurian death part of it, um, and in part because I feel like weirdly that's something I think about um, in the academic field, the academic community that I'm part of. I'm part of the linguistics community, which is very very much centered these days around Noam Chomsky, um, and I think a lot of us are sort of seeing some tide changes in the field and wondering what's it going to be like when Noam Chomsky isn't. At, isn't there to like be the center of this field. So I don't know, that may be a weird interpretation to impose on it, but I think that's what I'll be thinking about when I read it. <laughs> um, did you know that my in high school, my sister went out with Chomsky's son? <laughs> no. Is that, a, I, is that a weird factoid to interject here? Um, uh, that's an entertaining my, factoid. <laughs> my sister and Amy Chomsky were an item, very briefly. Um, <laughs> Um, but yeah, I know what you mean. There's something. There's something about that. Uh, this collapsed world, where um, the pillars of authority and sort of goodness, the institutions we all kind of rely upon. Um, uh, there's something really compelling about it. It's the story of Game of Thrones. I mean, story mm -hmm. Game of Thrones begins with the death of the king, basically, um, uh, and then you see Westeros splintering and collapsing and kind of turning on itself. Um, uh, we see a little bit of Britain doing the same thing. Arthur's Britain, you know, it's made up of all these little pieces. Um, there's Cornwall and Wales and Orkney and Scotland and Ireland and the Out Isles. Uh, and 
Arthur was holding them all together in this kind of loose confederation, which uh, through force of his goodness and his charisma and his power, he was able to like hold it all together. But as soon as he dies, uh, the, the old cracks start opening um, and everything starts falling apart. Yeah, I think there's something really compelling about the idea that like ideologies don't spring out of nowhere; they come from people. So. Yeah, and they have the flaws of the flaws of people. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think I speak for both me and Danny, and probably for all of our listeners too, when I say that we're we're really excited for it. Um, do we know when it's coming out, or is it too early in the? I don't know. Okay, um, okay. I, I, it's about <clears throat> it's about halfway written. Um, I, it, writing for me has all, has all changed because. Uh, I quit my job a couple months ago, and now all I do is write fiction. And I used to know how long it took me to write a novel when I had to write, had to to, to work on top of it. I don't know how long it takes me to write a novel anymore. Um, <laughs> this one is going to be much longer than the magician's books, um, ballparking twice as long as an individual magician's book. So um, that will make it um, take longer. But then again, it's sort of all I'm doing. So. Um, I want to try to have a good draft by the end of this year. Yeah. And that would probably mean realistically publication late 2018 or early 2019. Okay. Well, something to look forward to. Um, okay. Before we move on to the episode, I want to turn over to Danny for a bit. She's got some questions for you about your relation, the relationship between the books and the shows, the magician's books, not the right sword book, which isn't out yet. Um, and the show this season. So Danny, take it away. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's start with some fun stuff. Uh, what's most gratifying about seeing your work brought to life? And do you have any favorite episodes or moments from this season? The gratifying part for me, it's, it's mostly about the characters. Uh, you know, it's uh, a lot of the work that, that, that writers do is, 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 you know, is trying to make people out of words which in a way is a really, you know, weird thing to do. I mean, you're, you're, you're writing down what people say, you're talking about how they look, saying some things about what's going on in their heads if, they happen, if you happen to have access to them the way you're doing the narration. And from that, you know, you're trying to summon up this kind of ghostly consciousness, which you have in your head, and then you have to create it in other people's heads. But it feels very insubstantial. And, you know, it often feels like you're desperately pumping in air into something that has like 30 leaks, and it's just going to collapse and become flat. When I see um, Hale being Elliot or um, uh, Olivia being Alice, and the characters real, feel so real and vital to me, um, I love watching it. I love seeing the way that they've they've sort of um, jumped off the page and and you know taken on a new life in a in a new medium. It's very gratifying, especially mm -hmm. when they come up with funny things that I wouldn't have thought of. That's the best part. Um, <laughs> I did have a favorite, I think I actually did have a favorite moment from this season. Um, and it's the moment is, it's after the, the, the scene with the white lady. Mm. They call oh, it the white God, lady. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> I call it the questing beast, but I think they called it the white lady. Um, yeah. She was supposed to be the white stag, um, but then the copyright lawyers got snippy about um my having nicked the white stag from, from um, Narnia. So, <laughs> yeah, she called the questing beast and said, I don't know, these brilliant legal minds um, where, they, where they come up with this stuff. Um, um, as in the books, Quentin um, asks to be sent home and the white lady obliges. And he's there and he gets, he gets 
zapped back into Manhattan, um, and he's there, and he's, and he's in his sort of uh, Florian hunting garb, and he's got his bow and arrow, and he's feeling so just so sad and so resigned to how things uh, have played out and his part in them, um, and he junks his bow and arrow, he drops him in a trash can and walks away. That happens in the books too, um, and I loved the way it played on screen, and I loved the way um, Jason did it. I think that was. When you asked that question, that was the moment that sprang to mind. Um, it felt, I, I always liked it in the books. I don't like everything that I've ever written, but I really liked that bit, and I really liked the screen, too. I thought they did a really great job. This season has, has been interesting t- for me in the way that I, I think it has approached the source material of books a little bit differently. Um, yeah. And I think they've done... a a much better job of sort of balancing faithfulness um, with sort of going off in their going off in their own direction, and that those two episodes, the the episode where Alice becomes a Niffin, and especially the episode afterward with all that aftermath, felt yeah. to me like it really, really captured the spirit of the books in a way that um, that almost nothing else in the show fully has. Yeah, I often enjoyed the show. Um, and I'm, and yet I'm not having that feeling of recognizing something, you know, that I did being translated on screen. I just, it's like a cool thing that, you know, <laughs> uh, I've never seen before. And sometimes I have these really wonderful moments where I feel just like a total sense of connection with what's going on on screen. And that was one of them. And it happened a lot during those episodes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what most excites you about season three? What parts of the book do you hope to see on screen next year? Um. I'm really excited that season three is actually happening. Uh, <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> um, something funny went on behind the scenes, and I actually, I, I, I can honestly say I, I don't actually know what it was. But the expanse got renewed, and then like a month went by before um, uh, the magicians got renewed, and for a month, somebody was yelling at somebody else. I don't know who it was, and I don't know what they were arguing about, but it just took a really long time for them to sort out that season three was happening. Um, so I'm really pleased that season three is happening. Um, <laughs> I, I just got an email literally this afternoon from Sarah um, throwing out some ideas about season three and soliciting my ideas about season three. And I have on my to-do list, have some ideas about season three. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I have to do that. Um, uh, you know, obviously, there are some things that um, major cliffhangery things that happened. Magic um, uh, has disappeared, or has it? <laughs> um, uh, you know, um, uh, Alice is being pursued by something. I don't really know what it is. Um, by a fish, as far as I can tell, lamprey. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, some kind of uh, parasitic fish is after her, uh, which is concerning. Um, <laughs> And then uh, you have the business with um, um, Fuzzbeat and uh, the library and Katie and Penny, um, which has yet to fully play out. Uh, But how those things are going to intertwine and and what the big arc is going to be, I have some suspicions about it, but I can honestly tell you, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think that they're, I I, I sort of don't see them going full, fully into book three, um, in any serious way, uh, I would love to see them do, um, you know, a proper epic, a proper quest kind of story. Magician King, um, 
uh, Quentin's side of it really follows uh, the Don Treader, uh, Don Treader in some ways, which was you know the big kind yeah. of Homeric journey of, of the Narnia books. Um, I think it would be super fun uh, to, to watch them uh, to watch them try that out. They did a lot of stuff from book two, but not that. Um, I think it would be lovely to see them um, uh, to see them try that. I think we'd all love to see the the Muntjac, the Voyage of the Muntjac. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just got a new phone, and I need to get a new phone case, and I just discovered somebody had done a, a Muntjac iPhone case. Uh, <laughs> I was like, yes, I'm going to click on that. Because <laughs> it's when, you, when you brought up Alice being chased by the lamprey, and I remembered again that that's a fish, I had this like brief moment, this brief like light bulb go off in my head. What if that's what the whales are suppressing in the bottom of the ocean? Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, well, I guess with the collapse of magic, you know, whatever it is, it's, it's coming back up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that it's lampreys. I mean, lampreys are already <laughs> kind of around. Um, uh, but maybe there's a very big lamprey. or A magical you know, lamprey. A magic lamprey. A fairy lamprey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, that would be cool. I could see that. I honestly had no idea they were talking about fish. I was like, I don't know what's after <laughs> The lampreys are the ones they're they're in Finding Nemo. They're the ones with the like little the little lamp hanging out that are like at the bottom of the or ocean and they called- entice people in. No, no, that's an angler. No, fish. that's an angler. Oh, you're right. Fish. I'm sorry. What's a lamprey then? Hang on. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> I think it's like a remora. Like it, it's like a has that one of those suctiony mounds and it kind of um, uh, <laughs> attaches itself to larger fish. I might be making that up. Hmm. Helping out somebody. I don't know. We'll we'll have to look it up afterward. It's okay. Yeah. Part of the fun of a podcast is being wrong. Like you don't have complete. You can't just like turn on the internet and look up everything as you go. I mean, you could, but it would kind of distract from the conversation. So. Yeah. Okay. So the last time we talked, we asked you about what you thought about Julia's storyline in season one and the changes the show made to it. This season has been very Julia centric, so it seems like a natural time to follow up. How do you feel about everything that Julia has gone through this season? Um, I mean, complicated. She's definitely gone through a lot. Um, uh, I really liked the way that they they played out her um, uh, her relationship with Martin Chatwin and um, the strange kind of points of connection um, they found between each other, and the way this sort of funny way they worked out this kind of working equilibrium while at the same time, you know, still wanting to kill each other. Um, I enjoyed that a lot. I could have watched more of that. I kind of, I wished I that, that um, he'd survived a little longer. Also, I love that actor. And then it was great to see, um, it was great to see shadeless Julia. Um, Julia, you know, she can be a little bit lugubrious. Um, it, in the books, I tried to, trying to compensate that for with a lot of black humor that's going on in her head. Um, but obviously we don't get her stream of consciousness on the show. Um, so it was great to see her, you know, some of her anger and aggression and humor coming out um, uh, and watching the way Stella did that performance. Um, it was a lot of fun. It was fun. <laughs> she, she, she was very fun, but we were just like, so like, this isn't Julia. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a lot of elements of Julia in it, but it is, right, like, so much changes in the way that, in, in in the things that happen. And I think, like, for us, one of the big things that we've talked about before was setting fire to the forest just feels like a total violation. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know. I bought it. Um, <laughs> I thought, yeah, I mean, if, if Julia has so much anger in her. Um, you know, if it were truly unfettered, uh, I feel like, yeah, she'd totally blow up a talking tree or a lot of talking trees. Um, I don't know. I bought that part. I like <laughs> okay. it. I mean, I didn't like it, but I enjoyed watching it. Mm-hmm. I think that was the thing. It was a lot of it was like, I don't really completely like this, but I do love watching it as a viewer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very satisfying. It just doesn't always feel, <laughs> doesn't always feel comfortable, but I guess that's the fun of it. Yeah. Yeah. How about Elliot? In the books, he comes into his own pretty much immediately after he arrives in Fillory. But in the show, it's been spread out a bit. Yeah, I think that's worked really well. Um, Elliot is a character that I love. And there were things that I wanted to do with him in the books um, that I didn't get to. Uh, The books are a real kind of ensemble piece. But uh, um, some characters get more uh, airtime than others. Um, and I never, you know, I never got, to, we ne- in the books, we never got to see Elliot have a proper romance. Um, we, I, we, you know, I, we knew, or I knew anyway, that, you know, um, he had been in a kind of a death spiral on earth and he really found himself, himself and found his feet in Fillory. Um, and I was really pleased with the way that they took that and ran with it. Um, and I, I really have to call out Hale's performance um, on, on the show, which is just just so st- stunning and compelling. Yeah, he's um, phenomenal. He's such a superstar and was, to me, really the emotional center of this season. Um, so many of the plots ran through him. Um, and, uh, you know, they're obviously running around and in lots of different worlds. Um, uh, the emotional center for me was was was... Elliot and Hale, um, and uh, the the way he just performed that that story, it kind of grounded everything. Yeah, you know, especially in the last two episodes, one of the things that I noticed is is how much Elliot is like parenting all of the other characters. He's the one who like goes to Quentin and tells him like part of part of being an adult now is you have to like let go of the things you of the fact that like maybe. Alice won't forgive you and you have to go take care of your responsibilities. And then he's the one who like talks to Julia and so, and like gives her this little pep talk and is like, you want to be alone, but you shouldn't let's go, you know, do something else instead. <laughs> um, yeah. And he doesn't do, and he doesn't do like a big parenty father knows best kind of thing out of it. Um, no. He keeps it very grounded and, and funny and, and very, just very Elliot. Uh, it's it's really wonderful. I loved that scene in the finale between him and Julia. Uh, I felt like it had been a, a long time coming, and when they finally did it, they really knocked it out of the park. That sense of connection between the two of them. They really did. I love that line too. Like the what is it? Something like um, the way that you're relating to that couch is not unfamiliar <laughs> to me. <laughs> it was Gosh. it was such an Elliot way to deliver that line. <laughs> so. Yeah, they really got that right. Um, yeah. It was really really fun to watch. <laughs> I also love when he said um, that he cares, but he's not sure why he does, but he yeah. knows that he cares. <laughs> yeah, he never sort of oversells it. It doesn't. He doesn't go all sentimental. Um, <laughs> he keeps it within that Elliot range. Um, uh, yeah, it's so good. Yeah. Right. Okay. So our last two questions. Um, first, what are you reading these days? And also, do you still play Pokemon Go? <laughs> 
Um, to take the second part first, I don't play Pokemon Go anymore. <sighs> yeah. I yeah, gave it up. Um, I actually think everyone did. <laughs> yeah, I loved it, uh, and I got super into it. Um, and then I realized that, um, you know, that the, the thing of like walking around and kind of turning things over in my head is like a big part of writing for me. Um, it's part of my spiel that I always give to writing students, you know, don't neglect the parts of writing that happen when you're not at the keyboard and you're just walking around and you're turning things over in your head and, and just running your fingers over plot points that don't feel quite right. I wasn't doing that anymore because I was really focused on catching Pokemon. <laughs> uh, and it was a, it was a problem. Um, uh, you know, I originally got caught uh, into it because um, my daughter Lily was into it, but she got obsessed with Portal, um, and so we were playing a lot of Portal co-op, and there just wasn't room anymore for Pokemon Go. So <laughs> when I got a new phone, I actually haven't installed Pokemon Go on it. Uh, I just I didn't have any room left for it. <laughs> but I'll always look fond- I'll always look back fondly at my Pokemon Go phase. What's the other part of the question? What are you reading? Oh uh, yeah. Oh yeah. God, um, I'm reading. I'm reading a bunch of stuff for King Arthur. Annoyingly, unlike with the magician book, magician's book, I really can't make everything up. I can't make <laughs> up the stuff about King Arthur. It really involves a lot of historical grounding of the story, even though it's not a very historical story. Um, it has to feel like history. Um, I really. It's really important that I, you know, just all the hundreds and hundreds of retellings of this story, I want to know what people have done already with it so that if I'm repeating something, um, I can not repeat it. Instead, I can do something new with it, or at least I'll know that I'm repeating it. Um, what are the, all the different Guinevere's? You know, what are all the different Arthur's? Arthur has been, there are versions of King Arthur where Arthur's the villain or he's a terrible king. You know, the French took charge of Arthur for several centuries. And, you know, if they're going to, the French are going to write a story about an English king, he's not necessarily going to be a good king. Um, You know, there are ones where Mordred is a hero. Um, uh, I just wanted to know all that stuff. So I'm reading a book about, right now I'm reading a book about, uh, an academic book about T.H. White and the writing of the Once and Future King, which just goes very minutely through what he did, um, how he altered or respun his source material. Um, and uh, also how that related to what was going on in his life at the time, what he was drawing from. It's been very useful. Um, that's mostly what I'm reading. Uh, I, I just finished reading a book by um, E. Lockhart, who is a, mostly a young adult author. Um, um, she has a book coming out this fall called Genuine Fraud, which is like... It's just nutty how good it is. Um, it's no point in talking about it because it's like six months away. But uh, when it comes out, it's just going to like explode because it's such a perfect novel. Anyway, is it adult? I read that. Is well, it adult it's being marketed as, as young adult. The characters are at college age. Um, I read it as an adult novel. Um, it has a strongly kind of Patricia Highsmith hmm. vibe about it, um, a lot, very Ripley kind of vibe. Um, I read it as a grown-up novel. They're going to they're gonna market it probably as young adult, um, but I think a lot of adults will read it and um, get a lot out of it. Um, I actually loved her books, her young adult like series that she wrote. It was very like much young adult, but I really liked it when I was like 16, 17. Yeah, this is just, um, 
uh, it's just it's it's super. I I I met her at a couple of conventions, um, and uh, she and I are both failed academics. Although I'm a much more comprehensive failure than she is. She actually got a PhD, um, but you know we had a little sort of. And I'm from Massachusetts. Uh, she lives in Massachusetts. Uh, anyway, we got sort of chatty, and uh, she sent me the galley for this book, and it's super good. <laughs> Something else Exciting. to look forward uh, to. Yeah. Speaking of uh, all your research, have you watched Merlin? You know, I haven't. Should I? Yes. Merlin's good? amazing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Merlin's amazing. I will. I will. <laughs> I've decided that I'm not going to watch that K- Guy Ritchie, King Arthur movie that's coming out this summer. Uh, I just, no. I feel like... Guy Ritchie, King Arthur movie? <laughs> it's coming out. It's like in July. It's, it's, oh, God. it's soon. It has like Jude Law in it or something. I got a hold of the screenplay and I sort of skimmed it just to make sure that it wasn't exactly the same thing as I'm doing. And um, it's completely unrelated to what I'm doing. It looks like, since it's Guy Ritchie, it literally looks like, it, it reminds me a lot of Sherlock Holmes, the way that he made Sherlock Holmes as well. So, yeah, I mean, it'll be fun, but I don't, I don't know about it. <laughs> I like Guy Ritchie's movies generally, although I didn't like his Sherlock Holmes. Uh, yeah. But I can't, I, I'm not going to watch this. Either uh, it will be different from me and I'll hate it, or it'll be the same and I'll be and I'll hate it for being the same. <laughs> just a losing proposition between me and Guy. <laughs> I'm not going to do it, but I'll watch. I'll watch Merlin. <laughs> I, th- I think with that we should probably get into the episode. Um, yeah, and yeah, as, yeah, <laughs> as finales go, this one's kind of a whopper. When the episode opens, Penny's dying. Julia has her shade back, along with like all the emotional trauma that comes with it. Margot and Josh are chasing down Fen and her baby in the fairy world, and um, Ember is trying to destroy Fillory. And by the time the episode ends, Margot's missing an eye, Ember and Ember are dead, magic is gone everywhere. So not bad for an hour's work. And we usually start by just asking initial impressions, and I think, Lev, let's start with you. What did you think? It is is a whopper. I mean, you know, John and Sarah have a a very antic, fast-moving densely woven storytelling style, which is actually quite different from mine. Um, and it, and it, it, it churns through a ton of plot and boy, do they, do they churn through a lot here? Um, uh, I thought it was a really successful episode. Um, uh, I, I liked it a lot starting with the, um, Ember introduction, which is just so funny. Um, and I will miss <laughs> so him now good. he's dead. Um, Aww. uh, cause he was, he was super good. Uh, they really managed to, you know, not only um, wrap up all the uh, remaining um, uh, uh, plot threads. They basically wrapped up Julia's the previous episode, which was, I, you know, for me the dominant kind of story of the of the of the season, if there was one. Um, but they managed to wrap up everything else uh, about three quarters of the way through this episode, and then you know a whole bunch of other bonkers things start happening. Um, I found it really compelling and. Um, and really powerful. Then there are bits in it from the books that I love to see, um, and then a whole bunch of other stuff that was incredibly surprising. What about you, Danny? I'm letting everyone else go first because I have a lot of opinions. So. Okay. <laughs> I, uh, I thought it was interesting. Um, I felt like it was a lot more lackluster in comparison to the episode before. Maybe just because there was more action going on in the episode before, like with Reynard and Josh and just the craziness. Um, so... I, I feel like I liked the finale. 
I just didn't love it like Clara did. <laughs> <laughs> so, so maybe that's a good time to insert my opinion. Um, I, I really loved everything about this episode. Um, it completely changed the way that I think of the show, and I mean that in a way that, that really doesn't have anything to do with quality. I think this season has been, has been really on point, but this episode um, really altered the way I think about what John and Sarah and all of the writers are, are trying to do with the magicians as an adaptation. Interesting. Um, and I actually I have a I have a um, a clip from the episode that I think really sums this up well. Um, so if you'll indulge me, I'll play that. It's um, a conversation between Penny and Elliot near the beginning. Here's the deal. I just read your book in the library, both volumes. My book. Why? Because it ends the way they all do in a couple days, with twenty blank pages. Something's about to happen. Something magical and really bad. And I think it's it's Ember. He's been doing all sorts of up shit and fillery, bucket list shit. What's in my book? You do your recon. Find out Princess of Loria has taken White Spire. Shit. Then kidnap Adri, who I guess is a rat? Turn him back, then camp here, trying to find the perfect spell to force Ember to keep his mitts off of fillery. But if my book ends, then... Then, exactly. We know that doesn't work. So you need to do anything else. Anything. Pick a plan and commit. If it's written, isn't it written? Yes, but I think you can change it. Okay, so um, there's a conversation in the in the penultimate episode two that kind of mirrors this one um, between Penny and Sylvia, and I think what's really interesting to me is that it, it makes explicit something that um, when I started thinking about it has really been there all along, um, and. I mean, something that we've known independently, right? Like we know that the, the show is, isn't a faithful adaptation of the books. Um, and I don't even think it's, it's trying to be especially faithful. It's a fan's interpretation. Um, and, uh, you know, as an author of the books, I think that, you know, that probably puts you in a really interesting and, and unique position. And, and I don't, there's a lot of different approaches you can take to adaptation. This one has been very much about how the fans interpret those books to begin with and, and less about sort of authorial authority. <laughs> <laughs> is, is laugh how you feel about it? <laughs> um, I can't tell. Are you, are, you, are you suggesting there's like a metafectional thing about, about the, the books in the library um, and their relationship to Elliot's lived life? Um, uh, as an analogy for uh, how Sarah and John are handling the books that I wrote and turning it into a TV show? Um, I would say I don't think it's just that point. I think that a large, a large portion of this episode, and when I went back and started thinking about some other episodes, there are a lot of places that sort of make the suggestion that, um, that faithful adaptations are maybe not that interesting. Right. That is so interesting. <laughs> I never, I, I never would have thought of that. But of course, you're right. Um, From the very beginning, right. the big thing for me was in the pilot. When I started to think about it, right, like Jane warns Quentin in the very pilot, like "Don't stay on the garden path." And then mm-hmm. you have this mm-hmm. scene in the fin- this other scene in the finale where Quentin is talking to Umber, and Umber's trying to get this critique of his world. And what he says is, "It's too linear." <laughs> I just, I don't know. I just, I went I off. Like I went like. You- 
I feel like you should write one of those crackpot like theories that are like on a blog <laughs> post that are just like way too long with way too much evidence that no one has time to read. But you oh, I definitely should. But right now, I want to ask Love what he thinks. So. Does it does it symbolically make me Ember and like they sort of slew the author and now they they can really go off on their own? I don't know. It feels like right. Like I don't know if we're talking about the whole linear thing. Then Ember is closer, but yeah, but. <laughs> I mean, those themes are in the book too, in, in your books too. They're just about right. um, they're just about C.S. Lewis, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, the anxiety of influence really runs heavily through the books, um, um, and they definitely, you know, they've thrown it off by the end of the season of the show. They have, I think. Part of what what made this episode so exciting for me was that, um, you know, all through the season, I've, we've been sitting there and it's like, okay, well, there's some like book two stuff, but there's a lot of book three stuff. And, and where are they going to go once they burn through book three? And it kind of looks now like they're going to go to book two. <laughs> they're going to go backwards. So they like took your books and I'm sorry, I feel, <laughs> looking at you while I'm saying this is making me feel very self-conscious, but... <laughs> um, they took them apart and they completely reassembled them. It's, it's, um, and it feels once I started to like think about all of the little clues, like that's very intentional. Yeah. Well, one thing about Sarah and John, they 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 do nothing by accident or on a, on a whim. Everything <laughs> is very thought through. Um, and yeah, I I found it rather shocking um, when they killed Amber because. For me, that was the climax of the three the three book story. Um, I mean, that's like yeah. some season eight shit right there. But uh, <laughs> they have a vision that obviously extends the story far beyond uh, uh, what I had in mind. I kept thinking that this season was going to somehow end with them like turning back the clock and just like restarting over from scratch, just because that would be such a troll move and I feel like they would do it. <laughs> well, and you know, we started seeing, cause there's always little leaks, you know, we started seeing um, bits about the title earlier. And when the title looked so similar to the finale from season one, that really seemed like a, a way to go. There's too many cliffhangers. <laughs> <laughs> it's a finale. What do you expect? <laughs> so there's like too many. Okay. Like one cliffhanger, two cliffhangers, one thing, but there's like six cliffhangers. <laughs> Um, well, so, Love, you were saying before that um, you feel like you don't always have these moments of recognition um, with, this, with the series. Um, were there moments of recognition that you felt in the finale, and were there things that really felt like, they, like you didn't recognize them? Um, well, they've obviously really recast um, the Ember-Umber relationship and that, you know, climactic scene where um they all get killed for you know for me that was um you know it was it was a it was a huge emotional thing it was about um quentin coming to terms with his father and all the father mm -hmm. figures in his life and kind of learning to stand on his own on his own two feet um uh but it was seemed almost incidental to quentin's kind of um emotional arc uh this season so you know i both recognized that scene and didn't. On the other hand, you know, the scene that they do with um, Quentin and Alice, um, where he's, you know, trying to help her reconcile mm. to having been restored to human form. The bacon. Um, 
the bacon scene, um, that was obviously note for note, really, really similar to, to what was in the books. Um, and bore the same kind of, it had the same meaning in this, in the show as it did in the books. Um, uh, and they did it really, really well. Um, it was a difficult scene for me to write, um, involving the only moment in the trilogy that's from Alice's point of view. And, um, I, it was a very, it was very hard to write, and I worried when I realized that they, that they were going there in the show. Um, but they super pulled it off, like mm. you know, with a uh, a waste, a way, uh, with a lot of room to spare. I was uh, I was watching um, I was watching, and my husband was sort of watching along. And uh, he doesn't he doesn't normally watch the show, though he edits these podcasts, so he ends up knowing a lot about it. Um, and he he commented that he thought Olivia did a really spectacular job of of conveying like what it, what it is like to be not quite fully human again. Um, yeah. and I really felt that too. That's, I don't know, that whole, the, all of the scenes with Alice, um, after she comes back are, I think really have been really spectacular. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it's on Olivia who's just, um, she's just super good. <laughs> she really is. There were sort of a couple other things that, we're going to go back to this. We're going to go back to this because uh, <laughs> you don't come up with a full complete uh, <laughs> theory and then not get to talk to the author about it. <laughs> but um, there are a couple other things, like little things that I do want to sort of mention. There's this foreshadowing in the penultimate episode about um, Ember likes a whimsical death. Um, and a, a lot of, you know, I was talking to Danny about this and to um, a, another sort of press person who's in our little group who has, has seen the finale. Um, and we were trying to sort of suss out whose death was whimsical. And it feels like it has to be embers of the deaths that happen in that, in that two episode arc, but it didn't feel especially whimsical to me. Ember's death. Yeah. Um, no, I suppose it wasn't that whimsical. Uh, his his attitude toward it was whimsical. It was. Um, uh, he didn't. It wasn't. He didn't have a big dying, you know, tragic monologue. Mm, he was pleased. Um, <laughs> he, he was per- perversely pleased. Yeah. <laughs> much more. Much more like Elmer's death in the books. Yeah, I think we had talked to you before at some point. I couldn't find it. I looked um, about sort of like the Romulus Remusy relationship between um, Ember and Ember. Um, and in the show, uh, another thing that my, my husband was pointing out was um, that they, they've taken it a little more the, like, Dionysus and Apollo route. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ember is totally, like, a total hedonist, and Umber is, is completely about um, sort of bald logic. Um, and it's interesting, too, because that the sort of father-figure relationship that you're talking about, Quentin doesn't have that with either of them, but it sure looks like he'd be more likely to develop it with Umber based on the sort of limited interactions they have. Um, yeah, I, I suppose that's true. Um, they, 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 they went a different way, uh, a different way with it. Um, uh, which ultimately made, ended up making Umber a little bit downbeat. Um, I didn't think he was as fascinating a character, uh, uh, as he could have been. Hmm. Uh, I mean, Umber, I feel like to Quentin, he was almost like a fellow traveler, uh, yeah, there's two he, of you, uh, right? What Elliot says. <laughs> yeah. uh, super nerdy, um, um, you know, a little bit repressed. Um, I mean, the you know the one thing that the Ember in the show 
and the books have in common is that they have a very healthy relationship with their own desires. Um, they can really, they do what they want. They're super, they're very selfish and narcissistic, um, and are very into gratifying their own, their own needs. Um, uh, Amber and Quentin's desires are much more sort of twisted around and, and perverse and confused. Um, I definitely I, saw some of Quentin reflected in Amber. I had some very solid thoughts during both the last episode and this episode is that like, Ember is definitely chaotic evil. <laughs> no, I think he's chaotic neutral. You think he's I think he's chaotic evil? neutral too. I think he's chaotic evil. It's <laughs> like, especially in the last episode, he's just like, I'm so bored. Like, <laughs> I just want to kill everything. Yeah, he's very low on empathy. Definitely. <laughs> I definitely think in the books he's more like chaotic neutral, but in the show they definitely made him chaotic evil. <laughs> I don't know. I, I kind of think he's still chaotic neutral. I think we. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I, I take don't the, agree with that because I'm chaotic neutral. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just. I guess I would. I, like I kind of take the Hannah Arendt uh, view of uh, you know so much of evil really just comes from neutrality, <laughs> but <laughs> just not doing anything or or not paying attention to the sort of being amoral. Right? He's amoral. I don't think he's explicitly immoral until the very end. Uh, but but Lev, I'm curious. What is your D and D alignment? Oh, I don't know. Something something boring like like chaotic good. Probably chaotic good. I, I'm not <laughs> organized enough to be to be lawful good. Um, um, but I try to think of myself as a overall net benevolent force. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while since I thought about that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so a couple other things. And this one, Danny, I know you had a lot of thoughts about. When the episode ends, the big thing is that, that magic is gone, or as, or as you said, or is it? Um, right. And Julia seems to be the first person to have a little inkling, um, a little spark, shall we say. <laughs> yeah. I loved that. That was my favorite part. <laughs> yeah, so say a little more. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't have very many thoughts about it. I just loved that it was Julia, because I feel like she deserves it after going through this hell of a season. She, she really has to be suffered. the one that actually has it. <laughs> yeah, um, um, I had mixed mixed feelings about the the resolution of that big Julia arc with Reynard um, at the end of uh, of um, the second to last episode. Um, um, I wanted her to kill him, uh, and I slightly don't believe that she didn't. Um, I slightly don't believe that she that she held her fire. Um, I, I think Julia would have killed him. Um, and so, you know, we're left with this kind of non, you know, Reynard gets deported, basically. Um, <laughs> Julia doesn't pull the trigger. Instead, she gets her shades back, shade back and gets super mopey. And it's, you know, a little bit of an anticlimax. So I was pleased to see her um, reappear at the end of this episode. And then she doesn't even get to kill Ember. Another disappointment for me. I feel like she should have killed somebody. <laughs> Just uh, let Julia murder. <laughs> yeah, is that she so already much murdered to ask? a lot of trees. <laughs> she did kill some trees. I know. I know. Oh. I know. Um, uh, but so it was good to see her uh, reappear at the end of this episode with um, something surprising. Well, maybe well, I she earned seen that. The, uh, Sorry. Maybe maybe she earned that like magic moment because she passed up killing two gods. <laughs> yeah, well, and she passed up right. It's her third opportunity, um, right? Like she she skipped three yeah. opportunities. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I guess she. 
She deserves, she deserves, she definitely deserves something. <laughs> um, well, so one thing that I think that is sort of left hanging is that there are now like three God-killing weapons floating around the world. There's the, the original knife, which we don't know where it is. There's the sword. There's the gun with the magic bullet. Somebody right. suggested that that had also disappeared. I have to go back and rewatch the penultimate episode to, to know that for sure. But like, there are three of those sitting around. That's got to come back, right? I feel like Chekhov, Chekhov demands it. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, and obviously there's, there's, some, there's some uber gods uh, um, who are going to be floating around next season. So, um, it's, uh, yeah, so they, should, they, they definitely ought to keep track of, that, of those things. I really wanted, by the way, to be given another cameo and, and be cast as the plumber. <laughs> I sort of thought that. Oh, that would have been know, so great! <laughs> would have been. I don't know. There's kind of like, I looked sort of like a plumber, and uh, uh, there would have been something funny and metafictional about it. Um, uh, but the plumber was very good who they had. So then I thought maybe it's just as well. <laughs> okay, so I'm going back to my original question just for a moment, um, and I, I really what I want to know is. Well, I guess two things. One, um, if if they're doing what I think they're doing, if if they're making this sort of overt proposal um, in the show that uh, there's got to be a better way to say authorial authority than to say those two <laughs> words in a row, but that that um, really is is not what the sort of art is about. First of all, I guess just really how that strike how does that strike you? Is it interesting? Is it offensive is it you know where does it fall that kind of thematic thread yeah um oh it's it's definitely not offensive i mean uh you know um uh i am a professional travestier of other people's work so um uh i don't at all take it amiss when um when somebody uh messes around with mine um I don't know. It's a, no, it, it's 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 it, it's interesting. I think it probably. Um, I don't really think that I'm like a a a, a dark specter who um, <laughs> who dreams in in, uh, in Sarah and John's nightmares. Um, so it's probably about more than me. Um, but you know that question of of dealing with authority um, and fate and those things that try to cast us in certain roles in our lives. Um, it's a powerful theme. Uh, and they're, the way they think about pushing back against those forces is very empowering. I like it. I've been thinking a lot about, I, I haven't watched much of Supernatural um, or, or Sarah and John's other work, but um, I do know a little bit about it, and I saw a few episodes. Um, and one of the things that always, that always struck me is a lot of the stuff that they do has this sort of shimmer of camp about it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And... In, in thinking about it more, I think it's probably less about camp and more about um, they, they really care about fans in a way that isn't superficial. They're interested in the people who are consuming the work, I think, as much as they're interested in the work itself. And maybe that's over-interpretation. Maybe that's, uh, you know, me uh, giving, giving fans like myself a little bit too much credit. But it it seems interesting. It seems interesting to sort of take that route and to... To say, okay, we've got these characters and these stories and the structure, but fundamentally, like what really matters is is the interpretation and the and the the way we take it and the way other people take it from us. Yeah, I mean that that the the fan 
fan to um, uh, that the fan relationship um, is it's modeled in the books. Of course, um, yeah. it was one of the major things that I wanted to do was have a fantasy novel, which in which they were fantasy fans, and they've de- definitely taken that head on in the um, in the show. Uh, I'm sure that's. I'm sure that's a Sarah thing. She's the she's the fangirl. Um, uh, I don't get that from John. I don't see him as a fanboy. Um, he's I don't know something else. I think he would. Jo- I, we were we watched some of the interviews with him last night too. I, I think he'd enjoy the the like metafictional part of it though. Seems like the kind of thing he yeah. enjoys talking about in interviews. So yeah. Um, okay. Anything else about this episode um, before we go into fashion? Anything about like the season as a whole that either of you want to say? Danny, love was that you laughing at our fashion segment? <laughs> I laughed at your fashion segment. It's true. <laughs> I hope, and it's a, it was a supportive kind of laughing at. <laughs> well, good because because you're going to have to be part of it now. <laughs> we haven't talked about the fairies. Oh um, no, we haven't talked about the fairies. We should talk about the fairies. The, what about the fairies? Major, possibly the major. <laughs> yeah, the fairies are a really interesting addition. So, what do you think about them? I don't have any thoughts about them yet. They're scary, though. I, I will say that when I was reading reading scripts and the outlines and scripts for this uh, for this season, um, I was like, I was really shitty to them about the fairies. I was like, you know, fairies—they're so hard to do. They've been so overdone. There's so many cliches associated with them. You know, there was just that miniseries of, jo- of Jonathan Strange, which was so fairy intensive. Like, how are you going to do fairies in a way that feels fresh or mysterious or magical? Um, uh, and they were like, don't worry about it. And I was like, I am worried about it. Um, I wrote <laughs> like, many, many emails about my fairy anxiety. Um, but the fairies, they did the fairies very well. Um, they wrote them very well. They cast them very well. Uh, I thought that um, that was really successful. That said, I have no idea... Yeah. I kind of thought they'd wrap it all up with the fairies, um, but instead they kind of doubled down on the fairies. Um, <laughs> and I don't know where that's going, and I don't know how the the turning off of magic affects the fairies, who are obviously magical beings. They obviously have some technical magic restoring competence, um, given you know their work with the Wellspring. So um, there was some line about that too between um, Friar Joseph and and Alice. Um, where he, he just has this conversation with her where he says that like beings that are pure magic um, are fine. It's only people who, it's only people who draw from the wellspring, which I, I found really interesting. And I think that's something that I'm not sure how I feel about it as, as a departure from the books. Cause one of the things I really liked was that the destruction of Fillory was tied to the destruction of, of magic in the books that like you can't have this land at all um, in this like pre-industrial state that that Margot and Elliot are now stuck with it in, it just it doesn't exist without magic. But I'll be interested to see how that plays out. Yeah, me too. Yeah, the whole Friar Joseph thing is is weird, and and I don't know. I'm I'm curious about yeah. it. I'm a little I'm a little <laughs> bitter that we didn't get to see Castle Blackspire, but oh yeah. But also, well. I feel like they away from it because they just had Stranger Things, which was all about like the, the upside down. Oh yeah, the like, underside hey, or whatever. <laughs> the the under- no, no Stranger Things spoilers. <laughs> I, I haven't watched it yet. Oh my god, you have to. I'm gonna okay, watch it. you have to watch it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know we're throwing these things out at you. We really want you to write, but we also, you know, you got to watch these things. But I, fun. I, I, I do think because of similarities that they stayed away from that. That's all I'd say. That's that's fair. 
Um, okay, so let's let's get on to fashion. Um, and this, so normally we talk about fashion at this point, and um, I think rather than talk about this okay. episode, the only thing about fashion we have to talk about is Margot's amazing <laughs> like. I oh, the, the like pirate <laughs> patch. Um, that was yeah, that was pretty great. My favorite, my favorite line from this episode was, "I look like Jack Sparrow if he was played by a man." If he was played I by a man, yeah. <laughs> Such but a good... I just lose it every time I see that. Uh, I hear that line. <laughs> oh, she's so yeah. good. I feel like I feel like it's a social commentary on what um, Johnny Depp is going through and saying that the fact that he abused his wife is probably not a very manly thing. I, I, that's what I took it. I'll take that. That works. For I'll take yeah. that. I don't. Yeah, I have no idea if that's intended, but I like it. So you know, headcanon accepted. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I think one of the things I wanted to ask generally was just uh, whether the characters in the show dress in any way similar to what you imagined they would they would dress like, and if not, what sort of differences there are. Hmm. Hmm. Um, I'm not a very clothes oriented person. Um, I, I don't even know what I dress like. Um, I mean, I'm wearing an Aikwood t-shirt right now. Um, uh, admittedly, my, the rest of my family is away, so um, standards have really fallen off. Um, but uh, I don't notice clothes that much. In fact, I really struggle with dressing my characters, um, and I have tried to avoid describing their clothes as much as possible. Um, I will say that the Florian garments have been really good. Uh, and very similar, they have that wonderful, rich, royal quality that I kind of um, uh, imagined them having kind of really high-end, late medieval, early Renaissance kind of stuff. Um, I've seen those costumes in, in, in person, and they are just so gorgeous. Uh, you know, the, the, the person whose costume I have a perennial problems with is Alice. Um, I don't like the way they dress her. I don't like the high heels. I don't like the short dresses, um, the short skirts. Um, I don't, I think, I, I, I just don't, that's not how I saw Alice at all. Um, and it's still not how I see Alice. I don't know how you guys feel about that. I definitely agree. I mean, I think that, we, we've actually talked about that a little bit before. I think both of us probably saw her mostly as like a jeans and t-shirt kind of person. Um, not the kind of person who who really spends a lot of expends a lot of effort on how she looks except to maybe make herself less noticeable I, I i agree with that i agree with that and i feel like they just got it completely wrong it is really interesting to me that they uh you know we've talked to a bunch of the actors and and what they all sort of say about the costume department is that uh magali was it uh guidaski um put so much thought into uh, making the costumes reflect aspects of the character's psyche um and one thing I, I talked to danny about this um for the last episode one thing that um i have started to think about is uh basically everybody in the show has a style except for quentin um and quentin's style is 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 basically just there. He, it's not that he's not well-dressed, it's just that the way that he's well-dressed doesn't really seem to, seem to stand out in any way. And I really like that as a way of, um, of sort of showing that he is not, that he's interesting but not special, that he's, he's not the hero of the story. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, uh, he used to wear ties last season, I seem to remember. 
Oh, um, that's right. Which was a fun. A little more prep a, school. <laughs> that was a fun look. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's tough in some ways. Some of these characters are shy and depressed, um, and you want them to look good because people are watching them on TV. But then um, you don't want them to 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 be like swanning down runways or anything. Um, I think they do they good they do good work with um, with Jason and Jason is is so handsome and his face is so expressive. Um, uh, you know he doesn't even really need the clothes as part of his performance. I will say Magali has a tough job because uh, you know I really I'm really allergic to fantasy cliches. I hate them, and you know there are a lot of sartorial fantasy cliches, uh, and it's. Um, you know, it's hard to, you can't push back at them all the time. Um, I, I, um, I love a lot of what she does, but I, I, I hated the hooded figures in the Netherlands. I thought mm. that was a fantasy cliche. Um, but, you know, so much of it is so right. It seems peevish to, um, to complain. Yeah, I think especially, I mean, the most noticeable ones are, are Elliot and Margot because they are so in your face, but for me at least, like from the very beginning, Elliot has dressed very, very closely to how I imagined Definitely. him. Like, she does a good job Definitely. of 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 like modern day dandy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um I can't what what was your do you think Penny was covered up at all more this season or, or um what was what's their penny your penny watch telling you? I did think he was more covered up, um, basically until Katie comes back into his right. life. Um so uh, I'd have to go through and do a detailed rewatching, and I really want to do that. I want to do a, a full rewatch, though. Uh, we're two seasons in, so that's a larger prospect than it was before. Um, but yeah, I think um, I think he was a little more covered up. He also, I mean, he's just he's become less bohemian <laughs> between the first and second right. seasons, um, and I think a little closer to how I initially imagined him. Though, of course, Argent still brings something very unique to that character. Um, but a little, like, closer to, to the, like, tough punk that I saw. Needs more metal, though. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Arjun and Magali <laughs> were roommates for part of the season. Yeah. We heard. They, 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 they live in the same house. Uh, super funny. <laughs> um, okay, so we should move on to MVP, though. There's one other question that I would love to ask, if, if you'll indulge us, um, which is just... What have you thought about Josh? I know you told us before that uh, you had fought to not have him killed off, and he's gotten more of a role this season. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I think I think he's great. Um, uh, I I uh, I have unambivalent un- feelings about Josh. Um, I think he's hilarious. <laughs> I think Trevor just does everything right with him. Um, one of the reasons that I pleaded with them to keep him around uh, was that I thought they wrote him so well. Uh, and uh, uh, that was even before I'd seen Trevor play him. Um, and I feel like that's continued. Uh, uh, I love him. My only disappointment was um, I really loved this sort of hip-hop Josh kind of set piece in uh, G12. Uh-huh. I thought it was hilarious. But uh, in, the, in the rough cut that I watched, um, the, 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 it was a much better song that they had. I guess they must, maybe they couldn't afford it or something. Um, uh, mm-hmm. there was just this really sort of banging hip hop anthem. Who was it? Um, uh, God, who's that? Who, uh, who are the guys who do it? Can't remember, obviously. Uh, and it was kind of more restrained, um, in the show. Uh, and it, it didn't sell the joke as well, but it was still pretty good. 
Now I want to see the, the original song. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll ask them what it was. It was um, anyway, but it was still. It was. Did you guys like that that bit? I thought it was really funny. That was like probably one of the best moments of TV history. I was. Yeah, I dying. think that was. I was dying of laughter. Uh, Danny gave Trevor the MVP in the last episode, yeah. and I think it was based mostly on that montage. He killed it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and he works hard. One of the f- days I was on set last season um, is when um, was uh, included the filming of the scene where Penny kicks Josh in the nuts and he falls over. They did that so many times. Oh, my God. Poor, poor Trevor. Trevor went down like 10 times. Um, and, you know, he really sold it each time. <laughs> Um, okay, okay, so on to MVPs. Uh, for my part this week, I'm going to break with tradition, and I'm going to give it to the writers instead of somebody in the cast. I think the cast did an amazing job, but this episode uh, blew my goddamn mind. So uh, bravo, um, especially, I think John and Sarah were, were lead on this episode, is that right? I actually don't know. Good question. I have the script, but it doesn't have, it doesn't say, sometimes they say who wrote it. This one doesn't say on it who wrote it. Well, maybe it's just everybody then, in, in, in which case... You know, magician's writer's room. Great job. <laughs> Danny, you want to give it a shot? Yeah, I don't know. It gets harder when there are so many characters in this one. I think I have to give it to Olivia. Because when she ate the bacon, it was the most believable moment of the episode. <laughs> she did a really great job. Yeah, just becoming human again. So really, I feel like that would be a hard thing to do as an actor because you are essentially human. Yeah, I agree. And I think, like, um, that, that was one of the things that, that my husband pointed out, too. I think I mentioned that. Um, he was just really impressed by her performance. Yeah. Uh, Lev, do you want to join in the fun? Give an MVP for the episode? Um, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's hard because it's, it's a well-balanced episode. Everybody gets a little airtime, but... Um, Nobody, uh, nobody dominates. Um, uh, I could give it to Summer. I, I, I think um, I've just loved so much what she's done this season. Um, and, you know, from what could have been a one-note character, she's really just pushed the emotional spectrum in all directions. Uh, and she does it again this episode. Plus, the Jack Sparrow line mm. was very funny. Um, I'm going to give it to her. That's a good one too. I really liked that scene between her and Elliot, where she she talks about how like they can't just blow past it; they have to actually just be awkward. And that th- thinking about like the emotional range that's something entirely new for the season. That she's still right; she's still encountering new emotions that she has to play forward every every episode. Yeah, it's just great to watch her work and and um, just see her do things that you didn't know she could do as an actor. Okay, well. <sighs> It's time for our last rating of the season. Danny, you want to go first? Um, I guess I'll go with like an eight out of ten. Really? Oh, that's. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 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 like dialing it up to eleven, and I, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give it eleven out of ten. I I just thought this episode was so. You great. You just thought it was um, so great though, because of like this theory going on in your head, where it's like I'm not on that. Spectrum but that didn't plane. come from nowhere, right? Like that's not. <laughs> it's not that I thought it was want. great just because of me. My theories and prove them. It's not. It's not. It's not because I thought it was great because of me. It's great because it made me think about that, right? Like I didn't have any of that going beforehand. It it really made me think, and uh, you know, I think that's the best thing. Art can do a lot of things, but when it makes you 
when it entertains you and makes you think, that's like the perfect balance for me. So I'm sticking by my rating, 11 out of <laughs> is 10. That, is that ha. the top-rated episode of the season? Um, it's for her. Oh, God. I mean, this season has been hard because we started with our ratings calibrated to season right. one. And then we saw the very first episode and we're like, oh, well, this is incredible. And then we saw the third and fourth episodes and we're like, ah, shit, we're fucked <laughs> this entire season. So I don't know that there's such a thing as highest other than, um, yeah, I don't know that there's such a thing as highest. But this one, either this one or some combination of three and four would be my favorites this season, I think. Interesting. Interesting. Well, it's your turn, so you get to give a rebuttal. Uh, well, this is my first <laughs> rating, so I, I don't have to recalibrate. Um, at the same <laughs> time, I feel as though I ought to be cautious, um, not rate myself into a corner. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna put it at eight out of ten, just to leave some room, you know, uh, uh, for when <laughs> season three inevitably goes over the top. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I think that that's good. Any last words before we head out? Um, Nothing except um, let's do this again next season. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I think Danny and I would be really thrilled if we could get you for every finale. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about that. <laughs> um, okay, so I think that's it then. Thank you to our listeners for hanging out with us this season. Thank you, Lev, um, well, you know, for joining us for today, but also for writing the wonderful books that the show is based on. Um, and listeners, if you haven't read the books yet, you know what you have to do during the hiatus. And if you need something else, we'll be returning to the episodes in season one starting in two weeks. So until then, bye. A magical lamprey. A magic lamprey. A fairy lamprey.